Good morning, friends. Good to have you here again to worship together, our great God. Everybody loves a shortcut. Are you one of those everybody? We're always looking for ways to do something faster or better, right? I mean, hence the microwave. What used to take five minutes now takes 30 seconds, and we think our lives are better. We got all these, all these interests and shortcuts all the time. In fact, did you know that you can cut 10 minutes off your trip to Wenatchee if you bypass Quincy? There's a little shortcut. Are you aware of that? You can, you can completely skip Quincy um, and save 10 minutes on your trip to Wenatchee. There's these things called shortcuts that we all like, right? We, we think we're pretty smart when we, when we come up with one, we find one, or we use one. Like shortcuts on your keyboard. Everybody my age and older know what the word shortcut means, but don't know how to do any of those shortcuts on the computer keyboard. But we all love shortcuts. Are there any shortcuts to spiritual maturity? Mean a way to get from here to there more quickly, with less stress, more ease in the Christian life? Is there any way to bypass all that tedious difficulty and become spiritually mature? Is there something these famous holy Christians know that we don't? Shortcuts to the spiritual maturity, intimacy with God. Well, the, pas- the, the passage that we're currently examining here in Psalm 119 addresses the pursuit of intimacy with God and, and gives us the path to that intimacy. And maybe herein lies the secret or a shortcut to spiritual growth. Let's look at the passage together. I'm going to read it for you, and then I'll unpack it. Psalm 119, verse 161 through 168. The Sin Shin stanza. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. And so here we have the path to intimacy with God. The path to intimacy with God. Last week I mentioned to you as we um, were looking at verse 162 uh, that the Christian life is a spiritual battle. From the moment you come to faith, from the moment that the Holy Spirit regenerates your soul, you enter into a spiritual battle, a fight, an intense one. And the spoil, according to verse 162, is that joy that we find in that pursuit of intimacy with God. And so, as I mentioned last week, our joy is on the line in this spiritual battle. Our intimacy with God is on the line in this spiritual battle. So we need to make sure that we're fighting for spiritual intimacy on a daily basis. In in describing the importance of the pursuit of intimacy with God, A.W. Tozer wrote the following. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. 
Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us he waits so long, so very long, in vain. How much do you desire spiritual intimacy with God? How much do you desire a deep friendship with your creator? On a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most, what would you say is your interest in intimacy with God? You see, the fight to grow spiritually is an intense battle. The battle to be intimate friends with the God of the universe is real. And you need to know that the pursuit of God is the pursuit of joy. Those two things go together. So Psalm 119, as you know, if you've been here uh, through much of it, you've, it's been an exercise in growing deep in God. And I, I pray that you have grown from our study here in this wonderful chapter. The stanza that we're in today, this Shin, 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 Shin stanza, uh, focuses on this path to intimacy with God, I think, as much or more than any other stanza in this wonderful chapter. And so let's look deeply at this particular stanza. And I think this is an important issue. Is there an, a more important issue in your mind for us as Christians than to grow in intimacy with our Savior? I think it's what all serious Christians really want is to, to really know God, to be intimate with God. Now, of course, everyone wants to be happy and, and joy, of course, is at least our joy is directly related to our depth of intimacy with God, our Savior, who created us and, and designed us only to be happy in Him. And so if we're going to be happy in the Christian life, if we're going to have this overwhelming spoil of joy that the psalmist speaks of, it's going to be through an intim intimate walk with Christ, our Savior. So what can we learn from this stanza about being intimate with God? Well, there's two main points, and the first is this, we must run from evil. The first thing we must do if we're going to be intimate with God, if we're going to enjoy a relationship with him, a deep relationship with him, we must run from evil. Look at verse 163. I hate and abhor falsehood. I hate and abhor falsehood. And so we know that we must run from evil if we're going to know God at any significant level. I want to, I want to suggest some ideas about what it means to run from evil. Intimacy with God must begin with a hatred of sin. Intimacy with God must begin with a hatred of sin. Otherwise, there's no real desire for intimacy with him. Can you imagine an intimacy with God that allows a, 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 an affair with sin? <laughs> of course not. If you're unwilling to avoid what God forbids, then what does that say about your love for God? and your desire to know him deeply. Our, our love for God and his word is demonstrated by our hatred for sin. This is what Jesus taught, John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. And then Paul picked up on this from the other perspective, from the other side of the argument in Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And so what these verses show us in John 14 and Romans 8 is that obedience demonstrates a love and disobedience demonstrates a sure sign of hatred towards God. 
a love for sin. And so we must see here as we run from evil that intimacy with God must begin with a hatred for evil. There's no other place to begin this pursuit of intimacy with God. You must hate evil. You must hate sin. Next, I want to show you that a hatred of sin must be motivated by our love for God, not our disappointment with, with sin or evil. Uh, hatred of sin must be motivated by our love for God and not a disappointment with the outcome of sin. Let me give you a heads up here, Christian friend. Sin will always disappoint you. It'll certainly attract you, right? That's why we sin. None of us do things that we hate. We all are attracted by attractive sin. But you will never discover that sin fulfills. You'll always be disappointed with the outcome. So, hatred of sin must be motivated by our love for God, not a disappointment with the outcome of sin. I hope you see the difference there. Hating sin is not just being disappointed with it. It's, it's, hating sin is motivated by an intense love for God and a desire to please him. Psalm 97.10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. How simple is that? Do you love the Lord? Then hate evil. There is no hatred of sin unless it's born out of a love for God. Jesus said essentially this in Matthew 6, 24. He said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. That's the way it is. You can't serve both. You can't love both, pursue both. You, if you love one, you hate the other. And this is what I think we're seeing here in Psalm 119, verse 163. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law one or the other, the more that we hate sin, the more prepared we will be to love God and his word. Your love for God will be in direct proportion to your hatred of sin. So if you love God this much, you'll hate sin like that. Versus if you love sin, you'll hate God. That's what we're learning here this morning. Next, I want you to see in this running from evil is that your hatred for sin must be universal. And what I mean by that is we can't say that we hate sin and keep pet sins in the background, even if they're caged. We can't say that we hate sin and, and keep something that we like to do over here, even though we're sure it's not honoring to God. No, having a hatred for sin means that you hate all sins of every kind, of every form. We can't allow these pet sins to have a safe place in the corner of our hearts and then proclaim with the next breath, that we really do hate the famous sins. You can't say I hate porn but love gossip. I, I, hate alcohol, I hate alcoholism but I love the praise of men. Sorry, a hatred for sin is a universal hatred of all sin, every form that it takes. And of course we know that we're destined to be like God. Isn't that what Paul taught in Romans 8? That you're destined to be conformed to the image of your maker of Jesus Christ, your Lord. And so what do we know about Jesus in his love for God and his hatred for sin? It's all over the scriptures, right? Jesus loved the Father and Jesus hated sin so much so that he died for it. Next, hatred for sin must never end until sin is exterminated. That would be a way you could even define it. A hatred for sin is so intense that you're not settled until it's exterminated in your life. 
It's like getting rid of crabgrass. Uh, have you ever tried to get rid of crabgrass? If you rest bef before it's all gone, you're in trouble. If there's one blade left, it remains. You got problems underneath your lawn. In order to get rid of sin, you have to eliminate all blades of sin, every kind of sin. Otherwise, it remains. You haven't beaten it until you get rid of every blade of sin. Jesus said that if you have a sin that you just can't shake, you've got this one piece of crabgrass you can't seem to kill, you've got to get aggressive. You've got to get out the roundup. Even though it might give you cancer, you've got to get roundup if you're going to get rid of that piece of crabgrass, right? What did Jesus say? If you want to get rid of those besetting sins, those sins you can't shake, what do you say to do with your right hand? Cut it off. What do you say to do with your right eye? Pluck it out. We must get aggressive. I don't think he's talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about being intense, getting after it, doing what needs to happen in order to kill that last blade of sin. We need to get aggressive. In our natural state, that is our sinful state, we love what God hates and hate what God loves. This is, this is almost a definition of what it means to be fallen. We, God loves something, we hate it. God hates something, we love it. That's kind of like how we're born. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in us, all that changes, doesn't it? We, we wake up after we come to faith realizing, hey, I'm actually starting to love what God loves, and I, I'm hating what he hates. That's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a dramatic change that takes place at the moment of regeneration, and it begins from that moment onward to be a fight against sin and a fight to pursue intimacy with God, the fight I discussed last week in the sermon. And so the evil that we must be aware of and run from is the evil of the world, obviously. The, the scriptures make a big deal about the evil of the world. Um, it's, it's the falsehood here that's referred to in verse 163. I hate and abhor falsehood. The author of Hebrew, I mean, of, of Psalms here is, is not just referring to lying. Lying, of course, is falsehood. But falsehood is really the root of all of our sinful problems, right? You remember Adam and Eve? What was the root sin? What was the issue there? It was falsehood. They embraced the lie that they should be their own God. No one should be telling them, including the real God, how to run their lives. And so the embrace, the falsehood, is believing a lie. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 1. They believed a lie, just like Adam and Eve believed a lie, just like you and I believe a lie. It's falsehood. Every one of your sins you can trace back to a falsehood. You're believing a lie. And so we need to be attentive to this. That root of sin that lies within Adam and Eve remains within us. We think that we have a right to be our own God, to determine our own lives. Stay out of my business is our attitude before the Spirit does his work of regeneration. And so if you want intimacy with God then you must hate what, lie, what the lies that the world is selling, what the enemy Satan is selling. In fact, we could say that authentic faith is that which believes the promises of God more than the promises of the world. That's faith. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna determine to believe what God says, not what the world says. To hate and abhor sin is the only way forward. Do, do you want intimacy with God? Do, do you want joy in that fellowship and in in that growing love relationship between you and your creator? Then you must hate and abhor sin. Embracing the lies the world is offering is something that the authentic believer resists. But on occasion we fall, don't we? We find ourselves believing things that the world's selling. We, we find ourselves accepting these little things that you know sneak up on us and convince us that the world's way is better or more fun or more joyful than God's way. But thankfully, because of God's grace, and his love for us, he draws us back to himself, forgives us of our sins, and reminds us of the gospel all the time, day in and day out. If God would just grant us the ability to see for what it really is, the damage that the allurements of the world causes our soul, I think we would run from them like we would run from an angry bear, wouldn't it? If you could actually see before you buy the lies, before you, you sell out to one particular attractive sin in your life, what the damage will be on the other end of that, you and I would never buy it, ever. <laughs> but that's the deception of sin. That's the trick of the enemy. He makes it look attractive. And so we, like Adam and Eve, bite. And then we lose our joy. We lose the intimacy with God that we're pursuing. And then, of course, we have these two things. I'm talking to you, the evil that we must be aware of and run from. The first is the evil of the world. The second is the evil of a corrupted gospel. And there's others, but I just wanted to point these two things out because I think these are prominent issues in the Christian life, at least in our Christian life. The lies of the world are prominent in every Christian's life, but in America, the, the, the prominence of the corrupted gospel is especially dangerous to those of us who are pursuing an intimate walk with Christ, who want to find our joy in him. We need to run from the evil of a corrupted gospel. Do you want intimacy with God? Then we must be alert to anything that might corrupt our understanding of God's work in Christ for us and what it really means. Like Paul said to the Galatians, someone has cut in on you. Someone has distorted the gospel. Someone has bewitched you, Galatians. Someone has robbed you of your joy. What happened? You remember those first couple chapters of Galatians? The health and wealth gospel is that for us in our day. They would say that the Christian life ought to be easy. In fact, if it isn't easy, then something's wrong with your faith, then, then something's wrong with your relationship with God because God would never put his children in difficult circumstances. Well, what kind of God would do that, right? But those of us who know scripture, those of us who've been sitting under the teaching of Psalm 119 know a little bit better than that, don't we? We know that in fact, the trials we face are from a loving God, right? That's what the gospel teaches us. 
that God is about the process of changing us into the image of his son. And he does that through trial and hardship. To not discipline, to not challenge us, would be to not love us. The opposite of that corrupted gospel. You see, God uses and actually designs the difficult things we face to shape us into Christ-likeness. And of course, we know that Psalm 119 isn't the only place that this is taught in Scripture. You could do this, the sword drill thing. You just close your Bible and wherever it falls open, you can see it. Right? It's all over Scripture. The corrupted gospel would also say that accepting Jesus as Lord is optional. Just, just take his offer of saviorhood and leave the lordship thing until you're a little more mature. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The lordship of Christ is a fundamental part of the gospel. To say anything else is falsehood. You have not embraced Jesus if he's not your Lord. If you say, I'll take your offer of forgiveness, but forget the lordship thing, then you haven't embraced Jesus. That is a corrupted gospel, the thing from which we must run. The gospel is also corrupted by legalism. And this is actually more of a danger to people like us, the people who embrace doctrine and love doctrine and live doctrine. Legalism is the issue that actually should scare us more than this corrupted gospel. Actually, legalism is a corruption of the gospel. And, and let, me, let me, it's the opposite spec, end of the spectrum, though, than that easy believism I was just describing. Let me uh, read you a couple quotes from some notable theologians about the dangers of legalism. S. Lewis Johnson said this, one of the most serious problems facing the Orthodox Christian Church today is the problem of legalism. That's the problem that we're facing. We're an Orthodox Christian Church. And it's a danger. One of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was also the problem of legalism. This is, this is interesting. In every day, Lewis says, uh, he says, it's the same. Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer, and with the joy of the Lord goes his power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but cramped, somber, dull, and listless profession. And how attractive is that to your neighbors? <laughs> it's not. Right? The truth uh, Johnson says is this the truth is betrayed and the glorious name of the Lord becomes a synonym for a gloomy killjoy the Christian under the law is a miserable parody of the real thing Lord help us Piper said this about legalism legalism is more subtle and more pervasive and in the end more destructive than alcoholism you know we're so quick to condemn alcoholism but we sit here as legalists condemning alcoholism. <laughs> Satan clothes himself as an angel of light and makes the very commandments of God his base of operation. And the human heart is so inveterately proud and unsubmissive that it often uses religion and morality to express its rebellion. And the whole time we think we are just upstanding saints. <laughs> Learn to hate sin, Christian friend. Learn to hate a corrupted gospel, Sun Valley Church, it's falsehood. 
If you're going to be intimate with God, you must run from evil, every form of evil, at all times until it's extinguished. And then this stanza says in verses 164 through 168, then we must run to Jesus. After we've run from evil, then we must run to something, in this case, someone. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Charles Bridges wrote this, to lie before your Savior as his redeemed sinner and to wash his feet with your tears of contrition will be your highest and happiest privilege on this side of heaven. To cry the tears of contrition will be your highest privilege this side of heaven. Do you believe that? How deep do you want your relationship with Christ to be? Look at verses 164 and 168 again, and I want you to pay attention to the picture of what it means to run to Jesus in these few verses. 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I hope in your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Let's dig into that a little bit and see what it means to run to Jesus. Friends, we are sinners. We are sinners. And what did Jesus call himself? A friend of sinners. Do you like the sounds of that, sinner? That you have a friend named Jesus? Oh my goodness, we're sick. Jesus, as we heard earlier, is the great physician. He didn't come to heal the healthy, but the sick, like you and me. We're poor. Jesus is the great giver. We run to Jesus, and we run to Jesus with our sins. Look at verse 168, the second half. For all my ways are before you. We don't hold back some secret pet sins. No, we... We have everything laid out before Christ. He, he looks at all of our lives as we bring our contrition, our confession to him. This is a commitment to obedience, a commitment to honesty and transparency. This is what we do when we run to Jesus. If you want intimacy with God, you must run from evil and run to Jesus. And the first thing you do when you get into his presence is what we do here every Sunday is lay our sin down before him and plead for mercy. We bring our sins to a loving Savior. You see, God has no desire to play games with us. He has no desire to play make-believe. Let's, let's play house. Let's play church with God. No. <laughs> he wants this attitude, for all my ways are before you. All of them. He wants us to be completely transparent before him, even though he knows everything already, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. But he wants us, it's the attitude that I want you to see here. He, he wants us to, to bring everything and lay them all before Christ, being honest and asking for forgiveness. Like David in Psalm 139 wrote, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. God, there might be something in my life that I don't see, but my life is open and laid bare before you. Do what you will. Expose what you want. Please. Psalm 44, 21. God knows the secrets of the heart. 
So what good is there in trying to hide them anyways? Just be honest with your Lord. So we, we run to Jesus, first of all, with our sins, and then we run to Jesus to make us whole. How does this work? Well, look again at the verses starting in 164. These are simply a, a description of the faithful exercise of spiritual disciplines. Do you see them there in those verses? Our spiritual disciplines include reading the word, praying to him, confessing sins like I just detailed, praising him and thanking him. In verse 164, it says, seven times a day I do this. In other words, minute by minute, every day, all day, this is my relationship with God. I'm pursuing an intimacy with him. So running to Jesus is running from evil. And you can't run to Jesus and to evil at the same time. The two are in different directions, diametrically opposed. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the author clearly states that we need to keep our eye on Jesus as we run this race. Not keep an eye on Jesus and another eye like Marty Feldman on the world. No, we, we keep, have a single eye. We're spiritual cyclops. We got one eye. And it's on Christ as we run the race, is what the author of Hebrews is saying. I'm going to tell you a story that ex explains or demonstrates the, the danger of having to have your eye or trying to have your eye on two different things. In 1954, the Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, uh, held two of the world's only four-minute milers. You may have heard this story. John Landy and Roger Bannister were the only two sub four minute milers alive. And they were facing each other at these 1954 Empire Games. On the last lap, John Landy um, was making a separation between himself and Roger Bannister. And on the very last turn, John Landy famously looked back over his left shoulder to find Bannister only to have Bannister pass him on the right. There are famous pictures of this very thing. You see Landy doing this and Bannister is passing him here. And before he turned around, Bannister was five yards in front of him and Bannister won the race because Landy had his eye on the finish line and on Bannister. He tried to have his eye on two different things and it cost him the race. Friends, it will cost us a much more important race if we try to have our eyes on the world and the eyes on Christ. We can't do that. You, you can't have single vision if you're focusing on two things. The longer that we run this physical race, uh, well, a physical race, the more tired we become, right? We, some of you might get tired in 100 yards, some might get tired in 200, some might get tired in five miles. But a physical race will eventually tire you out. But not so in your race of life, race with Christ or for Christ. The longer you run towards Jesus, the stronger you become. The longer you run towards Jesus, the deeper your love for him becomes. The longer you run towards Jesus, the more you desire him and the more he satisfies your soul. The longer that you run towards Jesus, the greater your desire is to run towards him. The longer you run towards him, the less you have to remind yourself of the importance of running towards him. You actually gain strength in this spiritual race 
Let me say a word of encouragement to the young believer or the discouraged believer at this time. Many times we make, especially as young Christians, our pursuit of God a legalistic matter, a checking of boxes of, you know, I've done this, I've done that, and then the next thing. Um, and it's very rarely fruitful, that approach. And so I want to encourage you to, to be more concerned about your depth of relationship with Christ as you run the race. And instead of keeping track of, of details and, and feeling good about your success and bad about your failure, pursue a person. Pursue Jesus Christ. Um, don't punish yourself for missing, missing a day of private devotion. Uh, Jesus said that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so don't get discouraged because you can't seem to pray for 15 minutes or can't keep up with your daily Bible reading. I tell people who talk to me occasionally about their discouragement with Bible reading that sometimes reading less is better. Reading less is maybe more productive, more fruitful in the Christian life than trying to keep up with a regimen of one-year Bible reading. And I'm not downplaying the value of that. There is. I'm reading the Bible right now through a year. Um, and I think there's value to that. But the point isn't getting through the Bible in a year. The point is a relationship with Christ, right? So keep after that relationship. Keep pursuing that intimacy with God. Pray that God would draw your heart. Pray that he would build your affections and that you would grow in grace. And guess what? You will. You, you will become more consistent. You will find yourself at a place of anticipation, looking forward to the next opportunity you have for private worship and corporate worship. Jesus calls his disciples to take up their cross daily, to die to themselves daily, to live to God daily. Becoming intimate with Jesus is a lifelong daily process. There's no shortcut to Wenatchee in the Christian life. That's not available. We, we just keep on keeping on. We, we keep opening our Bibles. We keep praying. We keep coming to church. We keep fellowshipping with the saints. We keep on. Think of your spiritual life as a, a great water reservoir that you fill with a cup. Maybe it's Rimrock Lake and you take a cup of water up to Rimrock every day if it were empty and you pour your cup in. And after about a week you're going, this isn't working, right? And then after a year, this still isn't working. And then after 10 years, why am I doing this? Well, after, after an entire lifetime, you might see a puddle. The point is you have to keep at it. Keep adding the water. Keep doing the spiritual disciplines. Keep at it. You may not see progress next week, next year, maybe even in five years. But the, the, the way to, to grow in intimacy with God is to keep at it daily. Keep after it. And here are some pointers for the times when you find yourself um, with Christ personally, spending time in private worship, 
Sometimes because of the distractions of the world um, and the difficulties that you're facing at any given time in your life, you need to warm your heart as someone pursuing intimacy would. And so I would, I would encourage you to do that. And a way that I have found success personally in warming my heart before I really get into my, my personal worship time uh, is to prep it with maybe a reading of a Puritan prayer from the Valley of Vision. Or, or reading a paragraph or two or a chapter of the books by John Owen, The Glory of Christ or Communion with God. These Puritan men uh, who, who wrote of intimacy with God knew what they were talking about and have much that we can learn from. Thomas Watson's The Godly Man's Picture, John Flavel's Christ Altogether Lovely, or Richard Sibbs' The Bruised Reed. Read through these things to, to prep your heart, to warm your heart, and just engage your soul in that time of personal worship, and then from there, go into the scriptures. And many times you will find that what you're reading relates directly to what you've read from these Puritan theologians and divines. Another, another practice that might be helpful to you is to own a hymnal and keep it next to your Bible. And speaking of ways to either cement the truths you've read or to warm your heart, open a hymnal and you will discover that these old hymns that we love are rich in doctrine and theology that will remind you of God's love for you and your love for him. John Bunyan said, when I believe and I sing, my doubting ceases. When I believe and I sing, my doubting ceases. Get a hymnal and sing to yourself if you have a soundproof closet. Or not, doesn't matter. It's actually good for your children to hear you sing off tune occasionally. And then, of course, continually do the things that you're just called to do, the daily things that God is, <laughs> where God presents himself in his scripture, in prayer, in the word, in church. Uh, come to Sun Valley Church anticipating to hear from Christ, anticipating to, to have your heart warm to his love, finding happiness in Jesus. That is the design of our services. Make sure you're here when we offer these things to you. I hope you'll be here this Friday for the Good Friday service. Your heart will be warmed. Your intimacy with Christ will be deepened. Be here. And of course, all this results finally in intimacy with God. And what are the marks of intimacy? Well, three things. This, this uh, stanza says, the first is great peace. You see that there? Great peace have those who love your law. Those who are pursuing an intimate walk with Christ have great peace. Isn't that a blessing to know that peace is available to us and it actually is a sign of intimacy? You're saying, well, my life isn't very peaceful right now. I don't have enough money, my kids are out of control, and my relationship with my spouse is shot. Well, the prophet in all of Scripture really says this, what the prophet sums up in Isaiah 26.3, 
you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God brings your heart and mind at peace when you walk faithfully pursuing intimacy with him. And all these things that are true about your life, all these things that the world would see as a disruption to peace are just really more affirmations of God's love for you and his producing Christ-likeness in you. And of course, the peace that we have that, that comes from a walk with Christ begins with peace with God, right? To, to, to imagine that you, as sinful as you are, me, as sinful as I am, can have peace with my judge and my creator. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God, friends. That's the first step in intimacy with him. Secondly, peace in your circumstances. And you've heard this many times in the past months as we've studied through Psalm 119, but your circumstances has been designed by God to accomplish his will, which is conforming you to the image of Christ. You want intimacy with God, the first step is peace with him. Peace with him as your judge, and secondly, peace in your circumstances. Everything that you experience as a Christian is designed for your joy. Of course, there are disruptors to daily peace, even for us who are pursuing intimacy with God. Unbelief, right? Not believing that what God says is true, not believing that what God says about our circumstances are true, unbelief, and then active sin. You can see how that would disrupt <laughs> your peace with God. And then, of course, thirdly, quenching of the Spirit. Quenching the Spirit results in losing peace. How do you quench the Spirit? By ignoring His Word. He inspired this Word, and so when you ignore it, He removes the peace that you might want. And then, of course, the next is, besides ignoring the word, the way you quench the spirit is disrupting the unity of the spirit in the church. One of the spirit's primary roles in the body of Christ is to, is to bring peace between us, different kinds of people. And when we aren't at peace, it dishonors the spirit. It offends the spirit. It quenches the spirit. And so one way that we can disrupt the unity of the church is by being thin-skinned. I've said this on occasion before. It even came up in our small group last week. If you look here at the verse, great peace have those who love your law, verse 165, nothing can make them stumble. The King James Version translates the word stumble as offense. Nothing will make them be offended. So... One way to keep peace in the church is not be so easily offended. And that person didn't say hi to me in the lobby. So what? Did you say hi to them? Don't be so thin-skinned. Grow up. Put your big boy pants on. You know what? Don't be so offended. Right here it says, those who are at peace aren't easily offended. They don't stumble by these superficial things, these minor things. Which is why... The next point is it brings great stability. 
The results of intimacy with God is, first of all, great peace. Secondly, is great stability. Nothing makes them stumble. Can you imagine no stumbling in the Christian life? Always being in tune with God, always making much of Christ, always loving and living for your Savior. You don't stumble. It's a sign of intimacy with God. And thirdly, great hope. Verse 166, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. We have great hope, don't we? If you're a Christian, you have great hope. You have great hope that God will perform what he has promised. You have great hope that we are growing into the likeness of Christ. We have great hope that one day we will be with him in his presence to perfectly reflect his likeness back to him. You and me reflecting back the likeness of Christ to our Savior one day when we see him face to face. What a great hope that is. It's all happening here and now. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to lose sight and focus of these things and really not believe them because of the difficulty and trials that we're faced with. But to have this reminder put before us that intimacy with God requires us to run from evil and run to Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would each be committed to that, that we wouldn't toy with sin, that we would in fact treat sin like Jesus did with a a great hatred, even to the point of giving up his life for us who are sinners. Help us to run from sin and run directly to Christ our Savior who forgives us of sin, who heals us of all of our diseases, who gives us hope for the day and hope for tomorrow. Father, help these things be a great part of our lives on a daily basis as we pursue an intimate walk with you, our Savior. Amen.